All right, church, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're in 2 Corinthians right now. Uh, We're calling this series Ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing to the church and he reminds them you're ambassadors of Christ, which means we are representatives of Christ. This is a beautiful thing. We serve a God who created the entire world, yet a God who loves to partner with human beings to accomplish his purposes. God is willing to trust us with the things of God, to spread his message all around the world. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it's one verse, and I just want to, I think this is not just one of the best verses in 2 Corinthians, maybe the entire New Testament, but there's a lot to unpack just in this one verse, and we're going to start with it, and then we're going to make our way backwards through the rest of this message. But here's the, here's the word, and all of us with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord the Spirit. Now, one thing about 2 Corinthians I've tried to remind you of is most of 2 Corinthians, there's a, Paul's like making a defense of his ministry. And when I talk about Paul making a defense of his ministry, it means that he was being accused of things and people were questioning things. But I don't want you to think like Paul is like overly sensitive to where anytime there's cr- criticism or constructive criticism that comes his way, he immediately goes into defense mode, like some people you may know, and maybe that's what you do as well. So I don't want you to think he's just overly sensitive, like Paul's being accused of things, and then Paul chooses to explain things. People are questioning his motives and his authority and his attention, his intentions, and now Paul is responding with like the good news of God, like what it's all about. He's trying to defend his own ministry by helping to keep pointing people to Christ. And then you get this verse in verse 18, which for many people is like one of their favorite verses in all of 2 Corinthians, but there's so much there. It's wordy. There's a lot to unpack. And sometimes like, you read those places in the Bible and you're like, I love it, uh, but I don't really know what's going on or what's happening. So as Paul's defending his own ministry, I mean, he writes verse 18 where it says, all of us. So it's not just him, all of us. And as he walks through it, like this, this one image in there, and some of our versions don't have the word behold, but in the Greek, this is the word behold. So when he talks about beholding in a mirror, I don't want you to think like just glancing in a mirror, like where maybe you sometimes walk through, you know, you walk through your, your bedroom and you just glance at yourself in the mirror just to remind yourself how wonderful and gorgeous and beautiful you are. It's not that kind of glance. It's not just going through the bathroom and you glance in the mirror and you see something on your face. Like it's not that. It's like it's beholding. Like beholding in a mirror the glory of God. I mean, the image that comes to mind for me is like uh, from The Lion King, and I'm sure most of us have seen it at some point, but there's that one moment where Simba is looking in the water, which for hundreds, if not thousands of years for people, for them to know anything about themselves, this is what they would do. They would look in a river, they would look in a stream, they would look in the clear water and get a reflection of, this is what I look like, this is who I am. But when Simba does it, he sees the face of his father. So when Paul talks about beholding in a mirror in chapter 3, verse 18, the glory of God, Paul is saying when we look in a mirror, it's not that we see our own reflection. We see, we see the glory of God. And when it comes to the glory of God, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 alone, it, it's referenced, uh, you get the noun version of glory 11 times, you get the verb two times. So just in one chapter, you have around 13 references of the glory of God. 
And when it comes to the glory of God, the way it is described in chapter 3 is the glory of God is not God sitting on a throne and you bowing on your face, though we get those images throughout all of Scripture. It's the glory of God that God wants to reflect upon you, upon us, and then that we reflect it to the world. God is inviting people into partnership. So I want you to see this if you have your Bibles open. In chapter 3, verse 18, this is the last verse in chapter 3. And if you look at the first verse in chapter 4, it is about ministry, it's about engagement. This is the verse I pray over our staff, our ministers, more than anything else. Like as I pray for them throughout the week, I am often quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, that by God's mercies, that we're engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. So just think about that, right? By the mercies of God, we're engaged in a ministry, we don't lose heart. And I want you to hold that with chapter 3, verse 18, about beholding the glory of God. And I don't want you to see in chapter 3, verse 18, about like these different stages of glory. I don't want you to think like the glory of God has like middle school stages and then high school stage and college stage. It's talking about transformation. But as we are being transformed, it's this overflow to the world of the goodness of God. Because one thing I think Paul is really big on is we don't work and do service, acts of service to get saved, but because we are saved, right? So we're not called to do good things or to be kind people so that we earn the favor of God or earn the salvation of God, but because we are saved, there is a reflection that we have to the world of who God is, and this is is a gift from the Lord. Now you look in chapter 3, verse 18, you have this word unveiling, I want to invite two of my friends, Justin and Ashley, will you come and join me up on the stage today? Because you have this word veiled, which does not show up much in the New Testament at all. And really, it's only in Corinthians, the first Corinthians chapter 11 and then second Corinthians, that you have veil show up at all. So because of this, I want to invite two of my friends. Will you welcome Justin and Ashley to the stage of me today? Many of you know Justin and Ashley, and you probably know, like, they've been begging me to be on this stage for years. Like, will you please use me as an illustration of one of your sermons? Ashley, why don't you come over here? We're going to kind of do this like a wedding, all right? So Ashley has on a veil. This isn't yours. It's Crystal Lane. So we're, we're going to treat this with care today, all right? Now, different traditions use veils. Now, and for most of us, if, like, if we were to go to a wedding today and we see somebody wearing a veil, like, usually today there's not, like, significance that goes with it, it's, it's just like, it looks nice. I, you know, it's a bride, she wants to wear a veil. Or the father of a bride just begging for one more thing to spend money on for a wedding, and they're like, please, we've got to buy one more thing. Make sure they have a veil, all right? But throughout time, for hundreds, thousands of years, the Roman Empire, they used to have veils in weddings. But it wasn't like so much spiritual significance as it was, they believed that the veil is what kept evil spirits from getting not just upon the bride, but upon the marriage. And some of you may hear that and be like, well, dadgummit, I'm going to start wearing a veil too. If there's evil spirits in the world, I don't want them on me. And for Christians, for many years, a veil stood for chastity or purity or just righteousness, like inner beauty. And then you have like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where a veil really doesn't have anything to do with a wedding, but chapter 11, it's about reverence and awe. And there are some places in the world, especially in the Middle East, where there may be a covering that women wear at all times, but a veil is something that you could kind of see a little reflection. You could kind of see who the person is. In Judaism, there is a ceremony called the Bekadon. All right, and this is a ceremony that was very special in many Jewish cultures even today. Because there's this moment where the groom looks at the bride and he's got to make sure it's her. 
And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where Jacob like went to get married to Rachel and then he wakes up and it's the wrong woman that, I, which makes you think like how, how drunk did Jacob have to be, right? Like to wake up the next morning, it's the wrong woman. So, so here's what would happen. Justin, I want you to do this. I want you to take the veil of Ash, and you are married. They're married for anybody who doesn't know, all right? I want you to take the veil and I want you to lift it up. And now your responsibility is to inspect her face like, with your eyes. I like, just look like... We're gonna look like you gotta. Yeah, you just gotta make sure it's her, right? All right. Does does that look like Ashley? Because you married a prankster. Like she would be one who would switch out with Callie, just hypothetically speaking, or somebody just for a couple minutes in a wedding ceremony. It's her. And now you would take the take the veil and you're gonna put it back on. And this is a significant moment that does have spiritual meaning because when you put it back on, you're acknowledging that the person I'm marrying, there's there's beauty, physical beauty, but there's inner beauty. Like there's the spiritual beauty that you want to experience in your life and also help cultivate. So that's kind of a cool meaning. Now, today, like a lot of us, we, we may not see veils in weddings, but if Ashley would have been married with a veil on, it would have been for a moment in time, right? Like it would be kind of weird if you chose every day to wake up and you wear a veil everywhere you go. When you work out, when you teach in the Froggy Fours, when you're cheering on your kids at their sporting events, uh, you know, when you're staying up late at church camp with the junior and senior girls, you know, 2 a.m. that you have a veil on, it would be a little weird. So a veil is meant to be worn for a moment or an event, but you don't wear it for, at some time, at some point it needs to be removed so that you could be set free. But it does have, it does have something spiritual that goes with it. All right, now I want you to hold hands real quick. I want you to look at him. All right, you can't laugh, all right? You cannot laugh in this moment. Justin, I want you to look at the screen, and I just want you to quote, because Justin, you've always been a guy who's probably had words for the ladies, am I right? Songs of Solomon, I just want you to read this. Can you, here, scoot up just a little bit so you can read. All right, chapter four, verse one, I want you to read this, and Ashley, I want you to receive this as love words from your husband. You ready? Go for it. Beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind you. All right, so if you're, you're on date night and Justin uses this line, does it do it for you or not? Are you going <laughs> to? I'll see one more, one more, one more. All right, just for fun, all right? More. Your lips are like a crimson thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are all like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Behind that veil, we've always thought Ashley pomegranate cheeks, I guess part of it, right? Yeah. All right, so the, the, the veil is an important part of who they are. Now, here's the thing. Throughout almost all of Scripture, when you see a veil, covenant is involved. It's either about a wedding, a bride, or it's about God and his people, in which a veil stands for covenant, like there's some kind of special moment that is happening. So um, can I, can, are you able to take that out right now, that we can leave it up here on the stage? And can we put our hands together one more time for my friends Justin and Ashley? I love you guys. <clears throat> All right. Now, I'm not going to put this on because we live in cancel culture and who knows what would happen, all right? But in the Bible, there is one story of a man who wears a veil. And it was read just a moment ago in Exodus chapter 34. And Paul's going to tell this story in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, Paul, rarely does Paul go, go into deep detail about a story that you read in the Bible. 
But in chapter 3, for some reason, he chooses to take this bizarre story from Exodus chapter 34. Now, here's what you need to know about Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is right after Paul had received the Ten Commandments. So there is this moment of covenant that was happening between Moses, between God's people, and between God. So Moses puts on a veil, and the reason why is that Moses had been with the the tablets, he had been with the Ten Commandments, he had been in the presence of God. Exodus 34 says he and God, they had been talking with each other, and there was this light around the face of Moses. So he's lit up by the glory of God. And Moses puts on a veil to protect other people from seeing a light that was just so bright, it's like they couldn't look at it. Now, here's one thing you're going to notice. In Exodus 34, it says nothing about a fading glory or fading light at all. Paul takes the liberty in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that when he talks about Exodus 34, he talks about how Moses needed some kind of veil on to keep the light uh, because the glory was fading. I want you to see just a few things in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. Now, if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of, the, because of the glory of his face, a glory now that was set aside. Now, I want you to see how veil is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It happens four times. In verse 12, it says this, Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to to this very day, when they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. And then in verse 15 and 16, it's indeed to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the way Paul uses veil, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Right, the way he uses veil is it becomes some form of obstruction. It's, it gets in the way of seeing Christ. But I want you to see something that is called a quell wahomer. So follow me, just hang on just for a moment, all right? Because this is a wordplay that Paul is doing to prove a point. And, and this, is a, this is something that uh, many writers would do, especially people who were bright like Paul was. It was like, hey, here's something that was light, and then here's something that was heavy. I'm going to show you in just a moment how the phrase, how much more, shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And basically, it's like this whole thing of like, if, if that was true, so for Paul, like in, in Exodus 34, if that was true of Moses being in the presence of God and his face being lit up, how much more is, what is, is it true that the glory of God in and through Christ that lives in you, how much more is this? Let me just show you how this plays out in 2 Corinthians 3. In verse 7 and 8, it says, Now if the ministry of death chiseled on letters on stone tablets came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? So this isn't Paul saying whatever happened to Moses, like that's not important anymore. Moses is saying that was a moment in which the glory of God was bright. But now how much more do we experience the glory of God? 
There are two more of these that you'll see in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, how much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory? This is Paul's way of saying that the Ten Commandments was to bring light to sin in the world or idolatry that exists. But now through Christ, there's a ministry of justification, of being made right with God, not through sacrifices, but through the sacrifice of Christ. How much more is that? And in verse 10, you get indeed what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was once set aside came through glory, how much more has the permanent come in glory? Paul is affirming what happened with Moses in Exodus 34. He's not setting it aside. He's not disconnecting New Testament from Old Testament. Like that, that was glorious. But how much more in and through Christ do we get to experience glory? And the way Paul uses veil is that the veil is there over our minds and over our hearts to keep us from experiencing freedom in Christ. So for Paul, it's like that glory was fading, but the glory of Jesus that comes into your life, that comes into our lives, it doesn't fade. It's not like the glory of God is something you can turn on one day and off the next day, or the glory of God shines bright one day and then like a light bulb goes goes out the next day. It, it, It doesn't do that. The glory of God in and through Christ shines, it shines bright. Now I want to back up all the way to verse four through six because I I would make the argument that this is why Paul chose to tell the whole story about Moses, which leads him to making that great claim in verse 18. I think it is all about chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And here's what it says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I want to stay there just for a moment. And I just want to ask, like, do you consider yourself a confident person? And in life, when your competence is questioned, your confidence can be shaken. So if your competence is questioned, especially by people you know the best, if competence is questioned by family members or employees or bosses, employers, if your competence is questioned, your confidence can be shaken. And when you read the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians, the churches in Corinth were questioning the competence of Paul's ministry. And I think it led Paul, like his confidence was shaken a little bit. So he's going to talk about it. Have you ever had a moment in your life where your confidence has been shaken? Or how confident are you, to, how confident are you in your prayer life today that God hears you and that God will respond? How confident are you today in sharing the good news of Jesus with somebody you know? And how confident are you today to share the good news of Jesus with someone you don't know? How confident are you to serve? Like how confident are you to take a risk when it comes to relationships, especially when you've been burnt in relationships before? I remember uh, this earlier in my life, there was this moment of uh, just confidence that was shaken. I was in swim lessons earlier in my life. I did the whole thing where you went and showed up and learned how to, you know, tread water and swim and all that. You know, I was a kid, and the last thing in our swim lessons was you had to jump off a diving board. That was it. Like, that's how you graduated. That was it. So I got on the diving board, and I walked to the edge, and I was standing there, and when I saw the diving board we had to jump off of, it didn't look that high, but then when I got up there, it was 
I felt like I was standing on a skyscraper. So I froze. And the instructor was in the water to catch us. It's not like I was on my own. I had floaties on. I had my Superman Speedo because that's what mom, my mom bought me back in the day. All right, and I'm standing there. And I, the instructor is calling me into the water, and I didn't want to jump. My mom's over to the side. She's cheering for me. She's like, Josh, you're 16 years old. You got this, man. You can, you can do this. I was really like three or four, all right? I was really like three or four. And finally, I just I, I took the leap. I did it. This is one of those stories, as a preacher, you can tell every 10 years because the, the visual image is now something you have to shake over the next week of your life, right? <clears throat> I remember I jumped, and in life, like, I, I, don't wanna, I don't always want to talk about faith as if we're jumping off a diving board or jumping off a cliff, but in life, like, God's inviting us, like, have confidence to take a step, have confidence to reach for God, have confidence to fall forward, have confidence to move with Jesus, like, just God's, like, wanting to build our confidence, and for Paul, it's like he comes to an edge, and here he is with this church in Corinth, the church he deeply loves, and they're questioning his competence. His confidence is shaken a little bit, and what he wants them to know is like they're, they're questioning his competence because like they're, they're questioning his qualifications, his credentials. And Paul had all the credentials. And it's like Paul responds with, hey, this is not about credentials. Like what makes me, Josh Ross, an effective ministry uh, minister, if there is effectiveness coming from my ministry at all, it's not because I have degrees or I've preached over a thousand sermons in my life or I write books or it's, it's not that. Like confidence is what Paul says is, look, you question my competence. Here's my response. My confidence is in God. It's in Christ toward God. Like when credentials are questioned in life, God's still giving confidence to his people. And the confidence God is giving to his people is for us to be brave and for us to be free and for us to never let a veil keep us from seeing Christ or seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ or wanting to spread and be the reflection of the glory of God to the entire world. For Paul, his confidence is in chapter 3, verse 18. His confidence is that God changes lives. And it's not based on his credentials or how good he is as a public speaker or how his physical health was, which probably wasn't great at the time. His confidence was that Jesus died and Jesus rose and now God is in me. And the word in him or the phrase in him is one of Paul's favorite ways to talk about a Christian's relationship with God. We are in Christ. So we don't live in a way where we're trying to gain the approval of God. We're embracing the God who is already in us. We're not trying to appease God or trying to do enough works to where God is pleased with us, but we embrace the reality that God is God's inside of us. The glory of God, our God has chosen to place in us for his glory. John chapter three, and I want you to highlight this in your Bible in verse four. The same phrase is gonna be used in verse four and in verse 12. And in verse four, it is, since we have this confidence. It's almost like Paul is trying to speak it into existence. Since we have this confidence. And in your life, what is it that's keeping you from the confidence of God at work, at work and in, in your life? Like how, how can you lay that before God in some form of prayer of what is keeping you from fully embracing that phrase, since we have this confidence? And in verse 12, it's since we have this hope, 
Like Paul's making these declarations, like speaking into existence. Like here's a phrase I want you to claim that since we have confidence in God, since we have this hope, we know like the glory of God resides in us for the sake of the world. And this is for all of us. In Hebrews chapter 6, and Hebrews uses the word confidence quite a bit. I think probably because the writer of Hebrews is writing to people whose confidence has been shaken. And in chapter 6, or chapter 10, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead and go to Hebrews, chapter 10. Here's what it says. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and the sentence goes on for a few more verses, I just wanted that to be up there today. Our confidence is not based on our achievements or our credentials, but in what Jesus has done for us. And this is for everybody. And today, if you're questioning at all whether you are in Christ or Christ is in you, will you come to the edge, take a step, as we pray in a moment, pray a prayer of surrender, ask God to show you what a next step is in your life. Will you talk to me, talk to one of us? We're gonna have prayer leaders and shepherds around the room this morning of we're here to pray for God to place that confidence and place that hope inside of us. Randy Fredericks, our shepherd, is gonna be up here to my right. I believe Efren's going to be in the back, one of our shepherds. Rachel Galbraith and Kim Chapman are on the side walls to receive you for prayer. I'll be up here to the left. And as we go to the table this morning, let's reflect on Hebrews chapter 10. Of all Jesus did to eject confidence in us, and may we embrace moments this week that we have to shine the glory of God in our community and around us. May we embrace this as an opportunity in a week for the glory of God to expand. Will you close your eyes, bow your heads? God, I, I pray for the person in this room whose confidence in life has been shaken for whatever reason. There may be something in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 will take hold of their heart and their imagination. That they'll embrace this truth for what it is. I pray, God, for anybody in this room who's trying to live life in a way where we're trusting too much in our credentials or qualifications or building a career, building a life that you'll call us back to competence and confidence that is in, in you, something that will go on for eternity. And God, I pray as we leave this place and we go into the community this week and we engage strangers and workers and family members and neighbors that God, will you give us so much confidence that it will both set us free and that will call us to be brave. Uh, Jesus, for all you have done to rip away the veil so that we can see you clearly, God, we give you thanks. And for the covenant you have invited us into that you have chosen to share your glory. God, everything you are, you have chosen to share with us. We thank you in and through Christ. And the church said, amen. Thank you.